Smartcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I challenge you to go into a dispensary today and to find anything under 18% and in very good likelihood going up to 30%. So I'm seeing, and I'm only seeing people now who used to smoke socially back in the 70s. Now they're going back to it. Their brains are 50 years older and the THC is six times stronger than it used to be. That's not good math. Welcome to the Liberated Healer podcast where we touch on a variety of topics in the world of spirituality, energetic healing, and everything in between and beyond. Take an adventure on a shooting star with your host, Gina, offering their wisdom, guidance, and everlasting love and support. Hi, this is Gina Cavalier. This is the Liberated Healer Podcast. I'm super excited. I've been waiting to talk to this lovely couple, Emily and Mitch uh, Kleonsky, for a while, and they've written a book. Dementia prevention. Hello. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And the second part of the title is really important. Using your head to save your brain. Because there's a lot of stuff out there on dementia prevention from all different angles. But we come at it from a very specific angle that involves taking ownership of your health. Okay. Yes. And um, uh, you're uh, Mitchell, you're a PhD. Emily, you're MD. And you're together and let's just give everybody a little bit of history about you guys first um so people know the context about who they're listening to and watching go ahead want me to go please okay so i'm both an internal medicine doctor and a psychiatrist and i've probably taken care of thousands and thousands and thousands of patients specifically since 2007 people who have real concerns about their thinking ability or their cognition, is, as doctors call it. So um, I've treated, in concert with Mitch, folks who are everywhere from just having a little bit of worry because they can't remember somebody's name after they met them at a cocktail party, all the way on through to they can't remember their spouse or their grandchildren. And the data that we got from, from those wonderful patients enabled us to understand that there really were things that could be done concretely and effectively that would slow down the trajectory of what everybody thinks is an inevitable death due to dementia. Okay. And um, for people that don't understand dementia, can you give it a little bit of um, kind of 
I mean, we toss it about it, but what's the mm -hmm. difference between Alzheimer's and things like that? Okay, so I've got about three questions here. I'm going to try to do these in order. Uh, first of all, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. So a neuropsychologist is somebody who measures how people think. So we use standardized tests in addition to interview and examining their medical records and talking to them, talking to their families to be able to measure how well they pay attention, how well they're able to learn and then remember new things, how well they're able to solve problems. So we compare their scores on these tests with people as much like them as possible. Same age, same educational background, occupational history, and we even throw in a little reading test that gives us a finer idea of how they should be able to do. And then we measure how they're doing with how they should be able to do. We see if there's any difference. If there isn't, we reassure them things look really good. If there is a difference, then where that difference is and what it means. Now, that difference can go anywhere from a little bit of problem down to a much more significant problem. So that's where we get into what is dementia. Because dementia is a progressive neurological decline in function. So there are changes in our brains, both the size of our brain, the underlying connectivity of parts of our brain that together will make a difference in how people are able to live their lives and to function. So people with dementia have had a significant change relative to where they should be in how they now are. They go through a stage typically called mild cognitive impairment. So this is on the trek downward in terms of their thinking. When people are at this, what we call MCI, mild cognitive impairment stage, they have about a 50% chance of developing dementia within three years after that. That's the bad news. Yeah. The good news is the flip side, 50% of them don't get worse. And some of them, especially those that you can intervene on, can actually get better. So we actually turn back the hands of time on those people. But getting back to your question about dementia, when you're now at a point where you're focusing and your memory and other communication, other functions have declined sufficiently to interfere with everyday life, it now becomes a dementia that has a variety of categories underneath it. So the most common question we get asked is, is it Alzheimer's or is it dementia? The answer can be both. In the same way that if I said to you, what's the difference between a Ford and a car? You'd say, well, a Ford is a type of car. I say, exactly. Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia. It's one of the major types of dementia, but it's no better or worse than the other ones. These days, everyone is familiar with people who've had things like you know, vascular dementia, what we used to call hardening of the arteries, has to do with circulation in the brain. Generally because they may have had heart attacks or strokes. Sometimes even because of high blood pressure that's not managed, right. diabetes, things like that. We know that about a third of the people with Parkinson's disease will develop dementia. Everybody these days knows the story of Bruce Willis, who has a type of dementia really quite different than the others called frontotemporal dementia. 
People who follow sports are particularly aware that repeated head injuries in some people can cause dementia. Called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Right. It used to be called punch drunkness years ago, yeah. and they sort of uh, advanced this now looking at who, things who, from... Who is that boxer? Which one are you talking about? The, the, the most, the youngest one, the... the I, ask, I hate it when you ask me questions like this. I know. I'm, I'm not sure which one you're talking about. Okay. Uh, sorry different about track that. of where I'm going. It seems like boxing would be probably up there on the list with like football and all that stuff, you know. Um, yeah, soccer. Soccer is another big one. Yeah. But there's about 400 different things that can cause dementia. Okay. Some are correctable. Some are not. Yeah, I was looking on your chart on um, page 134. I know you can't see it, but it's very, in, you know, and I'm just going to call it out just so people listening can start to hear and, and you can chime on on a few things. But dementia risk, um, early life stress, obviously. So that would be like childhood traumas and things like that. Yes. And it can be emotional abuse, physical or sexual abuse, as well as neglect. Yes. So those are the background things. Those are the things that happen very early in life, along with genetics, is where I think you're starting. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting neglect because I'm I'm right. Uh, I think a lot of people know I'm writing writing a book for Swedenborg Foundation on uh, suicidal ideation, and um, a part of some of the issues I had as a child was neglect. So I think that it's just you know interesting how it really has a, you know a way bigger um, impact than you know, we've been talking about it for a lifelong, you know, issues. Um, you have um, uh, adolescent trauma. That's what we were talking about there. A prenatal and environmental. Yeah. And, and prenatal is where mom may not be getting the right vitamins or the right minerals, or maybe does not have the right amount of oxygen in her brain because she's put so much weight on. Or she's put so much weight on that it's caused an inflammatory condition. So that inflammation actually adversely affects the fetus. Yeah. Or she may be using drugs or alcohol or smoking cigarettes, all of which are going to make for a very bad prenatal environment for that baby. That baby starts out life about a half a step behind everybody else. Well, you have excessive alcohol down here anyways, and... I mean, that just seems like a no brainer, but, you know, I always get overwhelmed by how um, alcohol is not really seen as um, detrimental as it really is. You know, we have all these other, you know, laws against different, you know, uh, mushrooms and marijuana and things like that. And how alcohol is still so supported in the industry and able to do all kinds of marketing campaigns. And every single thing I read about it, it just is... Uh, you know, hurtful to every part of our existence. And it's just really interesting. You're absolutely right. And what people also don't appreciate is that marijuana is just about right up there in that same category, especially prenatal exposure. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, and it's now legal in 36 states. I didn't know 36 states. Wow. Mm -hmm. I've noticed it with people that do do it habitually every day that, um, having deeper conversations with him is really is harder. <laughs> and <laughs> That's because they're not thinking very well right now. And especially the, the level of THC content. 
Okay. The, the, the marijuana that was homegrown, the marijuana that used to be brought in over the border back years ago, they've estimated it being 4%. I challenge you to go into a dispensary today and to find anything under 18% and in very good likelihood going up to 30%. So I'm seeing, and I'm only seeing people now who used to smoke socially back in the 70s. Now they're going back to it. Their brains are 50 years older and the THC is six times stronger than it used to be. That's not good math. No. And that's really good information for people to know because, yeah, the casual, you know, marijuana at 4% is definitely different than 18 to 30%. And if you're doing that every single day, multiple times a day, and then, you know, you're doing it in your 20s and 30s. I, mean, I know people that do it every single day, like I said, um, you know. Yeah. There's so, an expression for that. They call it doing the chronic. Yeah. So, I mean. And it, and it can lead to dependency. It can lead to permanent brain changes. So this is not good. If you're really thinking, I mean, if somebody's really thoughtful about what they want to do in their earlier life, which is what we're advocating you know, the sooner you take control of your body, your brain, your health, your soul, you know, the earlier you do that, the better off you're going to be much later on. So it's there's really incentive to try and not do things that we now know are toxic. Problem is that when you're young, the future seems so far away. Yeah, we don't think about that. It really I mean, does. When we're 20 and 30, our brains are not fully myelinated yet. That means they're not fully mature yet, especially in the front where that's where the governor is. That's where the, the, the command and control is about what's risky, what's not risky, what's healthy, what's not healthy, how you plan for the future. Um, as women, we don't really mature that part of our brain till we're about 26, 27 years old. We've found that men, not unexpectedly, I might add, mature that part of their brain a little older, 28 up into their 30s. So it's like being an adolescent into your early adulthood. So we're still making bad decisions when we're that young. But maybe people who listen to your program will understand that the sooner they themselves can take control of what's going into their body and how they're using their body to exercise or to stay healthy, will avoid dementia when they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's what the program is about, is, you know, just trying to remind people that, you know, we have a long way to go, (laughs) and um, we want to be, you know, healthy and cognitive, and we're not, we're saying there's a balance, right? It can't, you know, we're not saying be so super strict if you want to explore something, but, you know, understand what you're getting yourself into with this information you guys are providing. It's also interesting to do some experiments on ourselves. One of the experiments that I often recommend to people, especially if they're doing, you know, THC laden products, because we haven't seen marijuana anymore. And and we're not advocating people try marijuana if they are not already users. Okay. The experiment we're suggesting is if you're already using on a regular basis, see what it's like not to use it for a month. Just do the experiment. See what it's like. See what happens to your thinking. See what happens to your motivation. See what happens to other things like your anxiety level. Because what you may discover is, you know, I'm thinking better, but I'm actually more anxious. 
And now I need to explore what's causing my anxiety, how to deal with it rather than simply suppressing it by altering my, my thinking process. I mean, I did that with caffeine. You know, you just have like this awareness, like, you know, I, I feel way too anxious if I have two cups. So I have one cup, but I know that I'm fine the rest of the day. You know, I went to this interesting um, event. The other, I would call it event. It was a party. Uh, I, I live in Malibu and um, <laughs> I'm a little older, but back in the day, it wasn't like this. There was like a pile of ketamine. There was a pile of DMT. There was a pile of mushrooms. There was a pile of THC. Um all mixed in with everybody drinking alcohol. Um, I'm writing a book, so I'm very, very, I don't even do, I, I can't absorb that kind of stuff. But I really got overwhelmed by the access to all these other things that they're, they're just randomly on a weekend grabbing this and going. And I, I was thinking about when we were going to do this episode, wow, like, do they even know, you know, the guy told me, you know, you're going to be able to see sick at geometry if you do some DMET right now. And it's, you know, I'm like, I meditate. I can see that through meditation, you know, but um, these are trends that are dangerous for our youth, I believe. It's an interesting phenomenon here in eastern part of the country in Massachusetts. We don't see parties like that. But I, I was sort of wondering what the line of cars driving out of the party might have been like. That's on you know, the Pacific Coast Highway. I find a different place to cross. Yeah. So, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, how that can all affect. Um, and then going back to you have. Um, now, this is interesting, too. You know, you talked a little bit about about like diet, diabetes, midlife, obesity, hypertension, smoking, sedentary lifestyle. So um, I'm really curious about that because that's not something you would think of it that could cause like, you know, that can help you prevent, you know, just moving and walking. Right. Let me um, give you the one word that ties all of those factors together, and it's called inflammation. Mm. All of those things cause inflammation in the body in a whole lot of different ways that's very technical and, and I don't want to bore everybody with that, but anything that is inflammatory causes changes to the blood vessels that gets blood to our brain cells. And so if we're causing those blood vessels to become injured and damaged and constantly wary of, and being under attack because they're inflamed, you're going to cause bad things to happen to brain cells. So that's the common denominator in all the items you just mentioned. And I think you also will see that all of those items are interrelated, which is a really important part of where we're coming from. Our book and our model is really based on a wide ranging scope of research. We've essentially looked at the large picture, cardiology, sleep medicine, uh, endocrinology, psychiatry, neurology, pulmonary medicine, because all of these things impose a burden or the opportunity for improvement based on how we deal with them. So you take that sedentary lifestyle, people who don't do much are likely be overweight. They're also likely to be diabetic. They're likely also through being overweight to not want to do much. So it works in both directions. 
if they're also smoking cigarettes, that's going to decrease their lung capacity as well as their cancer risk. But from a cardiovascular point of view, it's going to also cause more hypertension. If that's not managed properly, that's it's all in a ball. It all gets connected. And so the question is seeing where you are, taking an assessment, which we provide in the book, so that you can figure out where's my strengths, where's my weaknesses, what do we need to work on, and then unraveling these elements so that you start a positive rather than a negative interaction process. Because you probably don't see, and I'm sure you see some people that are really extremely healthy, you know, just they eat the right thing, they they haven't ha- played, you know, too many like, you know, brain damage afflicting, you know, sports or something like that. And uh, they're very active and they have just this really great diet and things like that, that just get dementia like that. Right. I mean, of course, there's always a case of that. But what we're saying is this is how you can reduce your risk for yourself. We see some of those people and frankly, they're the most frustrating for us because we don't have much to fix. Yeah. The idea is, and the research tells us that basically one out of two cases of dementia can be prevented. And that's based on two very large studies. One was done in England with the Lancet Commission, which was about 25 different physicians and researchers who developed these 12 different scenarios, 12 different uh, kinds they, of effects. They, they that, determine factors. Factors that will reduce your risk by about 40 to 42%. They took the same factors in America and applied this to this health and retirement study. Uh, They followed about 2,000 people over the course of a number of years. They found that about 60% of the cases are preventable. So we split the difference. One out of two, 40 to 60%. But as we talk about also in the book, there are those people who come in, they do everything the way they're supposed to. Yeah. And there's not as many things we can do for them. They got demented. It wasn't their fault. There wasn't anything they could have done differently, at least not that we know of now. And basically, we tried to slow it down from progressing. Yeah. But you know what, Gina? I'll also say this to you. You know, the average, even really smart American today, we're aware of the fact that we need to keep our body weight where our body weight's supposed to be. We know we're supposed to exercise. We know we're not supposed to eat a lot of sugar and, and white bread and rice and pasta. You know, there's this higher level of sensitivity to trying to be healthy today than there was 20 and 30 years ago, certainly. But what is in the book that most Americans are not aware of are those really silent things that can make a difference and when they are corrected or optimized can really impact somebody's cognition, such as, and I don't mean to get technical here, but it's things like homocysteine, methylmalonic acid, vitamin D levels, your iron level. So there are some things that you actually do need a cooperative, aggressive doctor or care provider to work with to actually get your metabolic factors to the best possible place they can be. And those are things that are not covered in a general physical exam. So it's important to point that out. And then you also talk about here, chronic depression and getting the right sleep and all that stuff. You know, there is such a a big amount of things 
that you can really, you know, sleep apnea can be hard for the brain um, and things like that. You're right. It's very, very hard for the brain, especially for women as we age, because our risk is much lower when we're younger, because estrogen is very protective of our blood vessels and are in our brain when we're younger. But once we get perimenopausal, which in the United States is beginning around the age of 42. Um, <laughs> I love uh, that reaction. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm allowed to say that I'm 71. <laughs> so around the age of 42, perimenopause sets in. And that decay in our estrogen level, that decrease actually begins to affect not just whether our skin is cross-linking anymore and staying nice and, and our hair is staying thick and full, but whether our muscles in our airway are staying as tight as they should be when we sleep. So when we're sleeping, we've lost our estrogen, we develop the same sleep apnea risk that the average man does, which is pretty high at the age of 50. It gets worse wow. as you get older. So that seven, what is it, 70%? At age 70, your risk is about seven out of 10. So to have sleep apnea. So now you're going into the other thing is like oxygen, obviously having quality air. And pollution has finally, hallelujah, been identified as a major dementia risk. Would the, does that mean, would you say that the numbers probably in places like you know, uh, China and India to have more dementia and, and maybe LA. Oh, LA. <laughs> LA is cleaner now than it was 50 years ago. I think yeah. it's, uh, yeah, but, yes, absolutely. But, you know, living closer to a toxic air, like if you're living across the street from a factory that's putting out a lot of pollutants in the air, they have followed those actually maps that show dementia risk due to cardiovascular and other kinds of changes, pulmonary changes, that you can pretty much map as proximity to those kinds of facilities. So where you are able to live, where you can afford to live, can make a big difference for like your children in terms of what they're going to be looking like years from now. Right. Let, me, let me tie the oxygen thing okay. back to how we actually can feel emotionally. What very few people appreciate today is that if you don't have enough oxygen in your brain, the, 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 the processes in your brain cells that are supposed to make neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine and acetylcholine and norepinephrine, those aren't working right. So when we think about causes of depression, you know, there's one school of thought that says there's a decrease in the amount of dopamine that's available or decrease the amount of serotonin that's available. Well, one of the best things one can do if you really want to fix depression is identify whether or not you've got sleep apnea. Because a very big study done primarily on women identified that 70% of the cases of women who were depressed had unidentified, untreated sleep apnea. That's incredible news. That's, yeah, that's- Right there. I mean, if there was one thing you were going to take to your public, that's that's the pearl. You know, um, when I do a lot of healings on people, I, I've noticed, and I, I almost nine out of 10 people, I, I look at them and I say, you're not breathing. 
in life. Hardly at all. Very rarely do people walk around and go and take a deep breath once in a while. They just they smoke small in the nose and they, they're they're busy and they don't they, they, they hardly ever use their whole lungs. You know, that's so. exactly right. And it would be helpful if they were exercising. So they were forced to use more of their lung space. But let me tie that really nice thought back that they don't take a deep breath. Relaxation, I think, is really critical mm-hmm. to good mental health. And there are some good studies that Mitch is more familiar with than I am that relate yoga and meditative practices back into good health. And what it boils down to basically is that there's a resting state network in our brain. When we, when we think our brain's doing absolutely nothing and we're really quiet, our brain's really working very hard. We can change the electrical activity that's going on in that resting state network when we meditate. So if you have a meditative practice, if you have some kind of a calming practice that you can get into regularly, I would say that that would be a very, very good thing for you in terms of your overall health. Well, what do you think? I feel like it saved my life. I mean, just, you know, in so many different ways, just, you know, to take that minute and, you know, the world is overwhelming uh, to most people nowadays. And uh, when you have a, some type of a, um, a stop. I used to call it like stop, drop, drop and roll. Just looked a reminder of the seventies um, commercials where it was like, when you're in fire, you know, roll, roll, <laughs> drop and roll. The <laughs> seventies, But I, I think that all the time is like, stop. If you're panicking or anxiety, stop, just go, go inward, close it down. <laughs> Here's an interesting connection. I, I, this, Covered this sort of accidentally by talking with people who were cigarette smokers. And I was talking with them and working with them on how to quit smoking because they all said they wanted to, but they all had reasons why they didn't. Sometimes it was because they thought there was not the perfect time to stop and that once they stopped, they could never ever have a cigarette again. So you have to wait for the right time and there'll never be a problem in the future. But with those who were smoking just a few cigarettes a day, I've seen people, oftentimes older, who smoke four or five cigarettes a day. And they're not physiologically dependent on the nicotine. So I said, so what is it that the smoking is doing for you? What it's doing in many cases is it's allowing them an opportunity to stop what they're doing, to relax that if they were not inhaling tars and nicotine, they would be inhaling deep breaths of air. So I said to them, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a pack of straws. I want you to cut the straws into the length of cigarettes. I want you to try an experiment where instead of having a cigarette, you take a straw out. You go through all the normal things that you do with your hands when you prepare to have a cigarette. Except you know? don't light it. Yeah, you, you tamp it on your <laughs> fake watch. And you pretend you've got a lighter. Yeah, you don't use a real lighter for this. And I just want you to breathe through the straw as if you are smoking. An amazing thing happens is this is an opportunity for them to take measured deep breaths as a way of breaking the stress of what they're doing, giving themselves an opportunity to rethink what's going on, recharge their batteries, and now they're getting air 
as opposed to contaminated air. It's a fascinating experiment. Uh, this book is really amazing. It's a John Hopkins Press health book, um, Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. And there's all kinds of exercises, you know, for if it either it's yourself or somebody in your life that you are a little bit concerned about or, or, you know, and there's a checklist here and there's risks. And you talk about, it's really an amazing little book. You've got, you know, you talk about social isolation, which is a big topic that, you know, um, I talk about, but you don't think about it as potentially going to cause dementia into the future. It's dementia. It's also depression. It's also being the connectedness that people need is really important. Years ago, I was supposed to do a talk one evening at a local college. And for whatever reason, I had not gotten my act together. It happened. And I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about. And that afternoon, a magazine, this is back in the days when you got magazines at home, a magazine came and it had an article relating to prisoners of war who were either allowed to be in cells next to each other in Vietnam or were separated and isolated. The article was called something like the buddy system. And what they found was that if you were in a cell next to somebody else, even though all you could do was scratch on the wall or knock in Morse code, that your mental health outcome was likely better than the people who were isolated. And just that became the topic of the talk that evening. I talked about social connectedness and why this is so important and how, you know, we live in a society where we go to school together, we work together, we do things, we live in groups of families and how the community is so important for our mental health as well as it turns out, our cognitive well-being. Yes. I mean, I amen to that. I'm all about community. That's one of my major missions in my company. And the reason I do what I do is regardless of what's going to happen to us, you know, we can't control a lot of this stuff, but Mm -hmm. things are going to happen. You know, if you have people around you, whether it's a health issue or relationship issue, I mean, a hundred percent better we're going to be when we're not doing this alone and we have to look out for other people that are alone we have to kind of reach out to them and if they're the kind of person that's stuck in being isolated alone you know knock on that door three times a week and you know don't be afraid to put yourself out there and you know um do that it's really a big deal and we talked earlier um not uh before we got on here about vaccines and how they affect the brain and i'm I'm really interested in what you had to say about how they could affect the brain. Well, basically anything that you're going to do that's going to reduce your risk of pneumonia, of shingles, of viral diseases, whether you call it COVID or it's a different kind of flu virus, because, you know, we've had all of these flu viruses for years. We've only just started labeling them recently. Let me, let me give you an example that has nothing to do with COVID. Okay. This data comes pre-COVID. Really, really good study done with all, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in their 30s to 50s. People who were admitted into a hospital for community-acquired pneumonia. So these were people who were living in the community. They weren't nursing home residents. They weren't really sick folks. They got admitted for pneumonia. It could have been any kind of pneumonia. 
Those people within one year after recovering from that ammonia and they were not intubated in an ICU, they were just admitted to the hospital, had a decline in their IQ that would have been equivalent to two standard deviations. Oh, wow. 30% of them. That was pre-COVID. So when we look at what happens with COVID and the long-term COVID, everything that we can do to prevent a viral illness or any illness that causes inflammation in your body or inflammation in your brain is going to reduce your dementia risk. Is that from the virus or the fever? I mean, a fever can really damage well, your The virus is what's going to cause your body to try and mount a protective response. The fever is actually part of that protective response. So since I have you here, it's a little bit of a side note, but I always believed that the fever was there to kick whatever was going on's butt in your body. So I never took fever reducers. And unless fever gets really, 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 really high, that's not a bad idea. Um, the fever is um, the the fever is a sign that your little hypothalamus in the middle of your brain there recognizes that there's an invader, and one of the things it does it says if I get this temperature here high enough, I'm going to kill that virus or I'm going to kill that bacteria. It's so it's partially protective. Sometimes it takes it has a bad side effect though, so you don't. If it's getting very high, if a child is having seizures, if you're very uncomfortable in your muscles because of the fever, it may be a good idea to take something more safe than not, like a, like an acetaminophen, if that's okay for your, your liver and the rest of your health. But fever is, I know, everybody used to want to keep the fever down. Well, the reality is this fever is, in its own way, very protective. Good, good thinking on your part. <laughs> yeah, no, you did right. You did um, good. Um, and I want to get into um when people do they do the assessment, they can look in your book or with their doctors or whatever else. Um, but once there are is a kind of um identity that this is happening, um, and I, I actually had a little experience with some assisted living places that help people with dementia and things like that. What what kind of um you know, experience or guidance uh, when somebody's going in that journey, do you offer to people kind of going down that road thoughts or it's so specific. Yeah. And I think the best kind of advice we give is if you're concerned about what's going on cognitively, you want to talk about it to see if your doctor is receptive to it. Sometimes you'll find healthcare professionals who are right on top of that and they'll get you to like a neuropsychologist like I am to get an objective measure. Always amazes me how people say, well, I don't know, you don't measure that. So, well, if you came and said to your doctor, I, I think I'm gaining weight. Would the doctor say, okay, gained weight? Or would the doctor say, let's weigh you? Why are we not doing uh, measuring this? If you're worried about your blood pressure, they're going to slap a sphygmomometer on your arm and see what your blood pressure looks like. If you're worried about, geez, maybe I'm going to the bathroom multiple times all day. I'm always thirsty. Well, maybe you have diabetes. Let's draw some blood. Let's find out. All those things we objectively measure. Same thing with cognition. We have to take an objective look at it. Now, everyone 
especially as we get older, has these senior moment kinds of things. You go to say something, you can't find the word. Just happened to be a little earlier in our discussion today. It's worse if you're in any way nervous or you feel under pressure. But these things can happen in the moment, especially if you're distracted or under stress. So then you get into this question of, well, what's a real change and what's just being older or being normal, being human? Very, very overlapping gray area. So part of it has to do with persistence of the problem. Part of it has to do with, does it look like it's getting worse over time? If somebody gets a diagnosis of dementia, the earlier that you treat it with existing medications, the better the outcome. And pretty much everyone we see with a diagnosis of dementia also goes through all of these lifestyle kinds of evaluations and recommendations, because if we can work on all of those other areas, we get much better outcomes. We have people who come in at one stage and five years later, the majority of them are still at that stage. Which is unheard of. And that's and good some, work. And some subgroups even better than when they came right. in. So there is a handful of medications that once it gets diagnosed, though, that can maybe either prevent further damage or... Yes. Okay. Or slow the trajectory. And okay. it's, it's great when you do everything that's on that prevention, the dementia prevention checklist, plus the standard medications today have a high degree of probability of really helping a lot of folks. So being on top of it is important, you know, yeah. because, you know, if you start to see that in a loved one or yourself or anything like that, you know, there is medications out there. I mean, I actually did not know that, you know, because you think that it's something that, you know, I don't know, it's not something that you would think medication could really help a dement do, you know, when you're going down dementia. And also I'm wondering when some people get dementia and they become kind of violent, is that because a certain part of the brain is having um, a reaction uh, or, you know, has been more affected? Well, part of what happens is that the, the parts of the brain that are responsible for control and inhibition of behavior, or maybe how we interpret what information is coming in from the outside world to us, we're not interpreting it correctly. So that's a reason why they can become physically aggressive, even verbally aggressive, violent. Yeah. Although it's important to understand the violence we're talking about here is not the planned violence. It's you not see. gunshot violence. It's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's somebody is attacking me. It feels like and I'm going to push back or maybe I can't even express what I want because I've yeah. lost verbal abilities oh, or gosh. I'm in pain. Yeah. And I can't even right. tell the person I'm in pain. So they come up to roll me over or do something with me. And I start lashing out because that's, I can't communicate that any other way. That's a good point, Mitch. It's, it's really not the mass gun shootings that we're seeing on television. Oh, no. Um, have you seen any new tech that you're interested in that might help people, like, say, a VR headset or... I mean, is there anything that you've seen that's, you know, other than the th the, the regular stuff you see about diet and taking care of yourself and medication, but is there anything on the trajectory that you've explored recently in, in new tech that you're interested in? Right. See, the, th the tech's interesting because people who get to use tech generally are able to think pretty well. So it's hard to find tech to be used later in the process. There are some things which they're using in some assisted living facilities 
where they will use this as part of therapy, where they'll take people on reminiscence kind of trips or exploring places in uh, the Southwest or up in the mountains or on a cruise, and they're wearing a virtual reality headset, but there's a therapist or an activities worker working with them while they do that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that the tech itself is probably we're going to see it more in the ease of things like home sleep studies to identify physical risks earlier, the ease of people being able to get their blood pressure measured easier, a lot of those kind of evaluative tools. And I think the other and probably the most really available form of tech that we don't tend to think of a lot as, as producing a positive effect on our dementia risk is things that are really simple like that. It's called a hearing aid. Um, that's fairly high tech. They're very tiny. No one looking at me would have known I had one in or two in actually. But um, Mitch, why don't you talk about hearing loss? I mean, yeah. this is a, a beautiful use of technology to help prevent dementia. And that's okay. one of the things, especially it's important today when they've deregulated how you can get tested and you can get hearing aids. My mom has a hearing aid. Uh, I, obviously, I love it because I can't talk to her, you know, what, you know, without it. But so it so there's um, a connection that helps with. OK, can you? Yeah. What's that? So let me explain. So basically, if you're not hearing well. Your brain is not getting stimulated. It's not getting pinged as much as it should in everyday situations. So you're not hearing birds singing. You're not hearing the waves crashing if you live near the beach. You're not hearing the refrigerator motor going on and off. All those background noises, which is why we tell people, if you have a likelihood of a hearing loss, if you're cranking that TV up, if you're having to repeat have people repeat themselves. If you're wondering, I think I'm not hearing so well, get it tested. And if they say you could benefit from hearing aids, number one, get them. Number two, actually wear them throughout the day. We tell people not to treat them like the uh, British crown jewels and only bring them out on state occasions. Because it's not just when you're talking with people. If you live alone, you want to be able to get that stimulation to the background sounds because that's going to help thicken or help to maintain the thickness of the cortex of your brain, the auditory association cortex. It also is going to help with this background resting state that is going to make your brain aware of stimulation to alert itself to. It's called the salience network, which says, hey, that's important. I should pay attention. Therefore, I'm going to hold on to it. So, yeah, hearing is like the tinnitus? big frontier right now. What about tinnitus? Is it slowly <laughs> squishing your brain? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, what is tinnitus? Tinnitus. Oh, tinnitus. That's, all, man, that's a tough bird there. Tinnitus is a very, very tough problem. And tinnitus is known to produce depression in about 40 to 50% of the people who have it which depression is a known risk factor for dementia. So it's it's something that really does need to be paid attention to. So the earlier the tinnitus shows up, the faster you should get your hearing checked, at least maintain as, as good and accurate sound input as you possibly can get. There, unfortunately, um, and I can say this from personal experience, there is still no cure for tinnitus 
Um, but there's a good workup, which kind of actually, believe it or not, mirrors some of the chemical tests that are in our book that uh, should be explored to make sure that there's everything that's correctable has been done. Yeah, my mom uh, had tinnitus, and then she got her hearing. Reason why, and then she got the hearing aids, and actually, the tinnitus went away because whatever was very lucky. Congratulations! You know, so that's why I'm mentioning that because the correlation between it, and so now she's actually happier because she was going crazy with the tinnitus, and you know, everybody else around her is happier because they can hear. You know, we can Mm -hmm. have confidence. But yeah, well, this has been really fascinating. Is there anything you kind of think is um, something we didn't touch on that people should know that? um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Here's my my request to people. Please stop asking what's the one food I need to eat to make my brain do better. Because if it were that easy, there's only a certain number of foods in the world. (laughs) Wouldn't we have figured it out already? Would there still be dementia at this point? If it was, oh my goodness, it's cocoa beans. It's the flavanols. That's what we need to do. And we can eat that and more of it. And that will fix it. Dementia One thing. There we go. All this stuff. Okay. Wonderful. It's been really great, Emily and Mitch. Thank you for putting... I know I'm, I'm doing a book. This is not easy work. I mean, <laughs> you got some incredible brains, though. I mean, I would love to sit down and have dinner with you one night. And, you Likewise. Know, <laughs> that's my favorite thing to do with people... Um, like of your caliber and it's just so, and you know, to have that you guys are, you know, on this journey together is really beautiful, you know, and it's, um, I, I fully appreciate your time today with us and thank you for your dedication to helping people. And thank you so much for your work and your outreach, because this message cannot go to so many people unless you really put out the effort and the dedication that you've got. So thank you for inviting us. Yes. yes. You've been absolutely delightful. Oh, so we got dementia prevention, Fella. You can start now, everybody. This has been the Liberated Healer podcast. This is Gina Cavalier. You can reach me at Gina at the Liberated Healer. Uh, com. Please like, share, and subscribe, or you know, let us know if you have any comments or questions, and we'll get back to you with that information. And just wishing you well. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us online at theliberatedhealer.com, on Instagram at Liberated Healer Podcast, or on Facebook at The Liberated Healer. Give us a follow, subscribe, send us a message if you so feel, and thank you for your support.